Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. Welcome to Bible class this morning, especially to you here seated in our chairs. Victoria, I'm going to ask, could you turn my volume down a little bit? Just a little bit. All right. Does that still sound good, everyone who's here? All right. Wonderful. And also, as always, we welcome those who are listening on the radio or online at kfuo.org. Again, I'm Pastor Kevin Thompson, and I'm privileged to be here with you studying God's Word. Let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this new day that you have blessed us with. We gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ to study your word, to hear your word and receive from you your gift, the fact that your word is a gift to us. And so now may your Holy Spirit continue to dwell with inside of each and every one of us and enable us to understand your words so that we may be strengthened in faith towards you. Lord, we pray these, pray these things and all things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, as is our custom, we will look at the lessons assigned from the lectionary for next Sunday. And if you're here in class, there are handouts on the Bible cart, or you could just grab a, grab a paper Bible of its own. So, our first reading next week, the Old Testament lesson, is Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 10. So, we begin, I'll read those verses for us. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth, for to all... For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms, to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow to build, and to plant. Here ends our Old Testament lesson for next week. So a word of um, note, first of all, before we get too far into this, is actually next Sunday, well, this is very wobbly, uh, next Sunday, here at St. Paul's, in all of our worship services, we will be celebrating Life Sunday. Um, and we will also, at St. Paul's, be recognizing as part of that um, any children or adults, anyone who's been baptized in our congregation in the last year. Um, we get to celebrate life in all forms, but also we'll get to celebrate the life we're given in baptism next week. Um, and kind of goes without saying, but especially all the things that have happened politically in the last week, it's fitting that we gather and we celebrate life. And especially we are doing so next week because of this, these scriptures that are assigned already, so it's very fitting. And especially Jeremiah uh, will be the, the focus of likely our message next week. So let's look at this a little bit together. Jeremiah chapter 1. In the book of Jeremiah, again, Jeremiah is a prophet. Okay? And so we have that this uh, very much, this whole first reading that we have, and even further on all through the rest of the first chapter of Jeremiah, really all of the first chapter of Jeremiah gets into his call. God calling Jeremiah to be 
a prophet. Okay, and so without necessarily getting ahead of ourselves, but the book of Jeremiah, the whole purpose is that God sent, God called and sent Jeremiah to the people of Judah to call them to repentance, to pronounce God's word to these people who were in terrible sin, a land that had just been thrown over to vices and horrible things. So he's going there to call Judah to repentance, to proclaim them God's word, saying to come to repentance. But also, as we'll see in the rest of the book, he's going to announce that as part of the judgment upon that sin, the people will be taken captive by the Babylonians. So he's also going to come and tell of the Babylonian exile. So really, those are the two things that come out very strong in the entire book. Calling people to repentance and have a coming judgment upon the people. And in some cases, some people might even read a lot of Jeremiah and you just be kind of downtrodden because it's... It's pretty heavy. Many, many chapters. Let's see if I... Uh, I didn't write down, but almost all the chapters of the 52 chapters really come across as calling repent to repentance and judgment. So of 52 chapters, all but three are so strong on this law and what God has coming to the people. But also, this book by some is referred to as the book of comfort. You might wonder, okay, how, how can I just say it's going to be so much law and repentance, proclaiming of repentance and judgment, and yet it's called the book of comfort. Well, it's called the book of comfort because yet, despite all the horrible things that he's experiencing and he's prophesying against, especially the three chapters, chapters 30 through 32, are such beautiful gospel. When he proclaims because of God giving him this prophecy, the new covenant that God will make with his people. And so that shines so brightly, despite all of the other things that he is there prophesying against. So, we get into this a little bit more. And here, Jeremiah chapter 1 is the call of the prophet. We didn't read them, but the first few verses there, the first three verses, really just get at the credentials of Jeremiah. Okay, who he is, kind of his line, where he came from. And ultimately, think about this, is that it gives us some historical details as well. I often say this in many different Bible studies, but because it's fitting in all of them. But this is real stuff. He really lived. It's real, true history. And so we have the fact that Jeremiah the prophet is set within history. Right there in the first three verses, it sets, us, sets it within history. And that also goes to that if you wish, you could dig into it more and really do more reading on all these other kings and experiences of that land. But those credentials show these are the kings, this is what was going on, and the reality is, is what was going on in the land at that time was terrible. And so we get into verses 4 through 8, more of our scripture today. Verse 4 says, that now the word of the Lord came to me, saying. That phrase, the word of the Lord came to me, is going to be repeated throughout Jeremiah. Also repeated um, in other prophets. But that's the phrasing that's used when it says that the God's word came to the prophet. That it's not this prophet who's just saying, hey, yeah, I feel like it. I'm going to say some things. This is good. It sounds great to me. No, this is God's word that came to the prophet. He, God comes to his people and he uses his people. But then we get into verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And this, for many of us, and as will likely be a very great focus next week in preaching, 
is really the crux of everything that we have here in this passage. That God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you. So first of all, you can see in this, God's the one who formed him. It goes back to, again, God's creator. So one, God formed you. And actually, you can go into this and digging into the Hebrew, doing some, um, listening to some studies online. This, some even think that the grammar used here in the Hebrew is not even just before, like, before you were formed, but even before that. So the whole point here is that it's so far before Jeremiah ever existed, God knew him. And even the inception of, of Jeremiah being formed, God knew him. Which, conceptually to our, our human brains, doesn't quite make sense. But the main point I, I share with you to that is, God has known him since forever. And then there's that word at the end of that first line, before I formed you, I knew you. This isn't just like, hey, I know you. I see you over there. Oh, I know who, I know who Scott is. Yeah, he, you know, he's that guy. No, this is a no to personally, intimately know. Before he was ever formed, God personally, intimately knew Jeremiah. Goes on, before you were born, I consecrated you. This word consecrated, also some translate it as sanctified. Ultimately, the whole point there between both of those words, in a more simplistic way of saying it, is I set you apart. God says, I set you apart. Before you were born, I set you apart. And then what did he set you apart for? That last line, I set you apart, I appointed you as a prophet to the nation. God already knew what he was going to do with Jeremiah. Before he was born, before he was formed in the womb, God knew and God had a plan for Jeremiah. A couple other things I encourage you to see in this also is, again, it's not like he's some self-appointed prophet. It's not like he just said, you know what, I, I see this, I'm going to do this, so let me go on, and I'm going to be the man, I'm going to tell everybody about everything. No. It's not him just coming and doing it on his own. And that, The point is, is this is a divine inspiration. God comes to Jeremiah. We also see that even stronger because then how does Jeremiah respond? Looking at the next verse. God says, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. He says, I, before I formed you, I knew you and I set you apart. And yet, how does Jeremiah respond? I'm too young. Not me. I don't know. I can't do it. Right? For lack of better terms, he's pushing back. God says, Jeremiah, I have this for you. And he's pushing back, saying, no, not me. His reasoning being he's too young. As he says there, I am only a youth. I do not know how to speak. Only a youth. Now, this isn't a um, derogatory on youth at all, but rather just the, the concept that, of course, as youth, we have yet to mature, right? Much to, much to learn, much to experience. Okay, some, uh, some comment, most commentators think he was under 20 years old. But ultimately, he says, this is the reason why I can't serve. Now, before we go further on this, can you think of any other significant or um, more discussed characters in the Bible? Moses, okay. Moses says, I'm not, I can't do it, right? Anyone else that you can think of that specifically talks about with youth and that they, were, they said, you know what, he's too young to do it? One of the most prominent kings we talk about, we hear in scripture? David. David. Okay? Uh, I'm, we're not going to turn to it necessarily, but if you'd like to write it down or, or note it at another time. 1 Samuel chapter 17. 
Especially verse 33 is really where you get the direct quote. But 1 Samuel 17, we have the story of David and Goliath. And David says that he's going to go out, he's going to fight Goliath. And Goliath says, no, you're too small, you're too young. Yeah, we know how that one ended. We know what God did through David in that account as well. And then just to name one other on the other side of things, the, almost the whole other end of our, our, our Bible as it's put together today, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul's writing to Timothy, and he tells Timothy to not let anyone despise him for his youth. Timothy being a pastor, a servant, essentially of God to the people. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says to him, don't let anyone despise you for your youth. Because God was going to be with Timothy, and he was. God was going to give Timothy the things that he needed. God was going to enable Timothy to then share the word of the Lord with other people in that time. So I named very quick, two, two very quick examples, in some senses on two spectrums of um, our canon, but... That to say, you could find other examples. The whole point is, is God says, Jeremiah, I'm going to use you. He says, nope, I'm too young. And God says, verse 7, do not say I am only a youth. It's interesting if you read this stuff. You can read it a little bit differently, put it in different words and like tones, right? I mean, imagine what kind of tone would God maybe use here, right? Don't say you're just a youth. For to all whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. So Jeremiah pushes back, and God pushes back one more time and says, No, I've got you. I will be with you. I'm going to give you everything you need. So one, he says, it's not about being a youth. He says, I'm going to send you and you'll go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. So again, it's not just Jeremiah going off on his own. God's going to give him the very things he needs to speak. Okay, and so in this we can, looking later on in the book of Jeremiah, if you read it on later um, in your own study, some of the things he has to say is terribly harsh. I mean, he's sent to call a, uh, an idolatrous nation to repentance. He's saying some difficult things. But again, it's God's word that he's sharing. God's going to give him the words to say. God's going to take him where he needs to go. And to that effect, as he's saying these rather difficult things, I mean, that's even putting it lightly. I mean, as he's condemning these people for their sin, saying the exile will come, condemning these nations and these kings that are doing these horrible things, I think the reaction is going to be of those people. I mean, when you hear something that you don't like, generally we don't react very well. Especially if someone's going to call you out and say, hey, you're sinning terribly, you need to repent and turn away from that. Well, if you recognize you sinned, you might recognize you sin, but you're just not going to like to hear that. But think about if you don't even recognize that you're sinning, what reaction you might have. To a people who's unrepentant and really don't even recognize nor care that they're sinning in the ways that they are, and they hear this message from Jeremiah, likely there's going to be some pushback. They're going to have some terrible feelings towards him. And so, verse 8, God assures them, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of the ones to whom you bring my message. For I am with you to deliver you. God will be with him. And then verse 9, the Lord put his hand and touched his mouth, which those words also might hearken for you, the call of Isaiah as well. Um, you can look at Isaiah's call. It's very similar. And then verse 9, God says, I have put my words in your mouth. Again, God's word in his mouth. Jeremiah is the servant that God is using. He is the means by which God is going to use it to share his word. 
It doesn't matter that Jeremiah is a human being. Jeremiah is not perfect. He's a fallible, flawed human like anybody else in this world. And yet despite that he's a flawed human being, God will use him. And God's word will still get to the people and the place it needs to be, and it will still do what it was sent to do. And verse 10, I have set you this day over nations and kingdoms to pluck up and break down, to destroy and overthrow. Four words about breaking down, of destruction. This, I mean, ultimately, God's telling them about the message he's going to send to this, these people, the message he's going to bring. And of the six words that are used, four are destructive words. Again, speaks to the tone of much of which Jeremiah's prophecy will be. Pluck up, break down, destroy, and overthrow. But also to build and to plant. So just the contrast, and you can see, as I mentioned earlier, the fact that so much of Jeremiah's book is, has a lot of words of harsh words to bring to repentance and the harsh judgment coming, and yet there is that hope in the midst of it. So, any questions or thoughts so far as I, I get into that? Mm hmm He did, Jeremiah did have a very harsh life, yes. And he lit all this, you know, as I described the setting, there was, a, a, I mean, much um, evil and, and horribleness around him. He was living in that too. It's not like, and, and that's, uh, thank you for bringing that, because it's not just like, okay, he's going to stand on the side and he's got a good old life as he shares God's word with these other people in the midst of what's going on. He's right in the midst of it too. And think about it too. He's proclaiming that the, this Babylonian exile that will, this Babylonian exile that's going to come, and yet he too is in amongst the in amongst the people who will experience this. I mean, all this stuff he's saying isn't just some foreign word said to, said to other people. He's right in the thick of it. And even some com commentators will talk about that. How did this affect, how, did, how would it weigh him down? How would it bring him even possibly? I mean, all this, the word of God that he was sent to, to share with people. And many times, as I've said, it wasn't all that encouraging. Harsh words to bring to repentance. And yet God still needed to make sure that his servant, Jeremiah, was encouraged. And so think about it kind of also, there's a two ways to it. God, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, not just to share and give the hope and comfort to the people, but also he needed to make sure that Jeremiah was still comforted and encouraged as he went to do his task too. Thank you for sharing that. That's good. Any other thoughts or questions? Oh, yeah, Joe. Right, so I'm going to repeat your question, Joe. Good, thank you. Um, verse 5 especially speaks, um, I mean, written to Jeremiah, or in Jeremiah here, obviously speaking of him, but as you say, it has very much um, application to what's going on politically now. Um, so the question being, does this apply, can this apply directly to each and every one of us? I think so. Absolutely. And we see that time and time in Scripture that, you know, God says these words to his servants in Scripture. I mean, first of all, you always have the primary context, right? He said this to Jeremiah. 
Jeremiah is being called to be a prophet with a difficult task ahead. So this is the word he gives to him that encourages him and tells him what he's going to do. That's first where it's set, right? But it absolutely can be applied to us. I mean, because we also know God is our creator. We also know God has known us since before we were formed in the womb. Now, in this sense, the, only, the difference is you, each and every one of you, have not necessarily been called and set apart to be a prophet to the nations in that same vocation. Now, we can go down the side path. I mean, prophet shares the word of God and the like. I mean, there's some differences. Ultimately, you all have been called to share the word of God, but a different vocation, right? And so that's where we take the, the, the different path there. Um, but ultimately, all of us have been called, consecrated, appointed, set apart to something in this, in this world, to many things. And there could be some debate. We could get into some theological debate, too, of being called to do different things. And so that could lead into a whole other Bible study. Um, but I firmly believe that God has known all of us since before we were formed in the womb. And that God does have a plan. And he knows what's going to happen. Now, again, that doesn't mean he micromanages every single thing that happens in our life. But he knows he's got stuff for us to do. And we know and can trust that he has, has things for us to do in this world. That he will guide us and give us his word. He will strengthen us and encourage us in those ways. That's a good point. And I think it does definitely apply um, as we think politically. Um, with the horror of what's happening and the laws being passed in New York of basically being able to kill babies. The fact that one of the biggest things is we know that God has known each and every one of those children before they were informed. The other thing I will share is that in the face of the horror, the one comfort, one comfort we can get in that is at least knowing that God's known that child. That that child can be in God's arms. I would pray that nothing happened to those children, right? I'm not endorsing that um, we promote abortion, of course, but we can at least root in that God knows each and every one of us. That is a comfort at least we can have. Any other questions or thoughts on this one? All right. Well, let's go on to 1 Corinthians because, as we'll see in the epistle and then even the gospel for next week, we have quite a range of ground we could cover in our lessons uh, for next week. So we're going to turn for the epistle next Sunday. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The way it's listed technically is 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31b, which just means it's the latter half of 31, through 13, verse 13. So I'll read that for us. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. 
For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, these three but the greatest of these is love. There ends our epistle reading for next week. Johan's familiar passage. You've heard maybe some of our weddings. Someone have had, right? Okay. Very, very common passage. But actually, I'm excited to be back here and we get to dig into this together because it was two weeks ago where in this class I was fortunate enough to lead you in Bible study um, in the beginning part of chapter 12. So, first of all, before we dig into 13 of 1 Corinthians... This is set within the context of this whole discussion of spiritual gifts. You have to go back to chapter 12, at least, to get a better understanding of the context. 1 Corinthians 12 starts this discussion of spiritual gifts. Quick review for those who weren't or those who were and just need a review. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about spiritual gifts, that, that God gives spiritual gifts to his people. They're not, people are given different gifts. It's not everyone has to get the exact same gift. And the problem was in the Corinthian church, they were abusing the gifts. They were uplifting more the human part of the gifts rather than the fact that it's God-given. And they were saying, well, I'm better than you because I have this gift or this gift. That's a quick, like, Cliff Notes Digest version, right? Okay. So in the midst of that, Paul is talking about how there's all these gifts. And then verse 31 of chapter 12. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. Okay? Now, again, not this is not an elevation saying that someone is better than someone else if they have a different gift. But more importantly, hear what it says. Earnestly desire these gifts. These higher gifts. Which means there's nothing wrong with praying for it. God, through Paul, God is saying, pray for these other gifts. Pray for the higher gifts. There's nothing wrong with desiring a gift from God. Now, if you're ungrateful for what he's given you, or if you become solely focused on that, that you lose focus of the true meaning or anything else, then we have a problem. But God is saying, go ahead and pray for it. Pray for these gifts. As we know, he'll answer as he sees fit. But he says, earnestly desire, pray for him. And then he says, I will show you still a more excellent way. I will show you in a more excellent way. And the more excellent way is love. And that's what we get in through the next chapter 13. The more, more excellent way is to exercise any gift, all the gifts you've been given by God in love. So verse 13, you see in the first uh, three verses. Basically the point is, is if you have this gift, but you don't use it with love, it's worthless. Look at the metaphor he uses in verse 1. If I speak in tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. I know some people may not find the cymbals all that beautiful to listen to, just on their own, right? But ultimately, they're a musical instrument. Okay, so there's a place and a time for them to be used properly and to create music. But here he's saying, if you don't have love extras in these gifts, you're just like a, someone who's just banging the cymbals and the gongs all day long, and it's just annoying. It's pointless. 
It's lost its whole purpose. The purpose is to create music and, and uh, be enjoyed and be beautiful. And you know, we're here now because it's not. It's just noise, clanging, noisy. Then you go on to the next one. If I have these the prophetic powers and mysteries and knowledge and faith. I can move mountains, so to speak. So, so, so to speak. But if I have not love, I'm nothing. Literally nothing. And yet you're blessed with all these gifts, but you don't exercise in love. You're nothing. Then again, he says almost the same thing, uh, that they are, I gain nothing. If I give all away all I have, and I deliver my body to burn, but have not love, I gain nothing. And this one's even getting at this whole point of when it says, deliver up my body to be burned. That's talking about willful martyrdom, really. To say, I deliver my body up to be burned, being burned ultimately because you're killed for the faith. If I even go so far as to martyrdom, but I don't have love in exercising that, I gain nothing. I mean, it's quite a, a great thing to be martyred, ultimately because you're sticking to your faith in that sense. Okay, so hear me properly when I say that. In God's eyes, to stick to the faith, so to speak, you endure whatever persecution, even so far as martyrdom, that can be seen as a good thing in the eyes of God. But you gain nothing if it's not done with love. So God roots all this in love. And then we have uh, uh, probably the mo more famous part of this, verse 4 through 7, what love is. Okay, just going to say it right now. This is talking about the love that is shown in Christ. God's love. Okay, and I know this is, is said at weddings, which is great and good because ultimately... When we're here, if we talk about a wedding, a man and a woman who are coming together to be joined in, in marriage, they are joined together and they are desiring to show love to each other as Christ has loved them. So, which makes sense as fitting why you can have it read and, and focus on that. But this isn't just like, okay, I can do this on my own. I'm going to be a good husband. I'm going to be patient and kind and I'm not going to envy. I'm going to not say the own thing. I'm not going to be irritable. I'm not going to do that. It's not because I can do that on my own. I can show that kind of love because Christ has shown that to me. And because if you think about it, you look in those verses, there is nobody in this world who can love like that on their own. As much as we'd like to say it, none of us on our own could be patient, um, not irritable, not resentful, rejoicing with the truth, bearing all things, believing all... None of us can do that on our own, but because of Christ, we can and this is a love that ultimately can be shown in all and should be shown in all relationships. Here, especially I think we need to remind ourselves this is set within the discussion of the church here in Corinth. So even think about how could this love be shown within a church? Because the spiritual gifts were causing the people to have division in their church. The church in Corinth. Elevating one over the other and God saying, no, you need to use these gifts in love so there's unity in the church. How can we seek to also continue to show love here in the church as brothers and sisters in Christ, as it describes here? Okay. Go on, verse 8, love never ends. The other way it can be translated there, which I think brings even a stronger weight to it, is instead of never ends, never fails. Love never fails. Because then it goes on to say that prophecies, they will pass away. Tongues, they will cease. Knowledge will pass away. The things in this world will go away. We talk about that so much in our, in our, in our church, right? 
All this will go away one day. We'll be in eternity with God. That's a good thing. But again, here we're reminded of it. This stuff in this world, even the gifts that were given in this world will pass away. But love never fails. Love will continue forever. Because again, we're not talking about this worldly love. You ever think about the never, many different kinds of ways love is used in this world? I usually say this with, my, my, with the youth Bible studies that I'm leading. I mean, how can you love a pencil? I mean, because it's cute. I don't, I don't understand all that, okay? You know, I love this chair. I love this shirt. Or what? We use love all the time. Now, now you're going to go around thinking about how, much, how many times you say love, okay? So I'm not criticizing you and saying, if you, okay, I love this, I love that. But think about it. This is a love that's different than all those other ways that we throw around love. This is, again, back in Christ's love. And Christ's love isn't like any kind of love in this world. His love will never fail. It will never, as it then says in the next half of that verse, pass away, never cease, again, never pass away. And so then we go on in verses 9 and following, talking about essentially this whole, um, the way things are here now, the way things will be in eternity. Okay? So, um, verse 9, we know in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So we know in part now, but one day the perfect will be. Okay? And so then it goes on talking about um, a little bit more how things are now to the, to the future and eternity. But in the midst, right before that, verse 11, again, we have another reference to child. We talked in the last one. Jeremiah says, well, I don't know how to speak. I'm just a youth. And here in the same reading, we also get to hear how he says, well, when I'm a child, I spoke like a child. Again, not a dig on children. Okay? We often actually see, how many times in Scripture do we see that God holds up the children before others? Right? God says to be like one of these little children to inherit the kingdom of God. So this is not a uh, derogatory comment on children at all, but really just a, a metaphor to talk about the fact that, again, as children, we are immature and we need to mature. Just the fact of the way it is. And also this isn't saying you can't, you can't be the person who says, oh, I'm going to be a child forever. Right? I have an uncle, I love him dearly, and he's always like, oh, I've never grown up. I'm never going to grow up. So if, if you have that mentality, it's all right, okay? Because he just likes to have fun. But probably, I do think he's matured. You know, he just likes to have fun with things, okay? This isn't what this get, is getting at. This is simply getting at that, again, that we need to have this maturing in, our, in the way we are doing things. And so that if you think about all these gifts, okay, they will, as we grow, we can continue to grow, use them better because we've matured in our faith. We've matured in our use of them. And then again in verse 12, we talk about this mirror thing. That, think about a mirror, okay? A mirror, if you're looking at someone, like if I, if, I, if I taught with my back facing to you and I had a mirror up here, I could see you, but it's kind of a secondhand scene, right? I could see all your face. Also, that would be really awkward if I did that. I have no intention to do that, by the way, okay? But here, the point is, is that in this mirror, yes, okay, I can see, but it's just a reflection. It's like a second-hand kind of seeing. And then it says at the latter half of that verse 12, but then I will see face to face. So again, here and now in this world, it's not, a, it's not the fullness. We don't get to see things in the fullness. But when Christ comes back, we will see face to face. The clearest picture there can be. And then verse 13, faith, hope, and love abide but the greatest of these is love. It's interesting, I read in one commentary this, this quote. Faith and hope can mature. 
But love, when it's matured, is still love. I'm just going to throw that out there to wrestle with all of us, okay? Faith and hope can mature, but love is always love. Okay, now now we're talking about, we're not talking about the fact that faith, you know, you have to have a, a stronger or better faith to get into heaven. Christ gives us faith, what it is, that's how he saves us. But in our faith life, we can grow in our faith, right? We can continually to grow stronger in our knowledge and understanding of the scriptures. And same with hope, we can continue to grow stronger in what we hope and we know God will do. And yet love in Christ is simply always what it is. Even in eternity, it's the same love that it always was. Just wrestle with that a little bit more. And feel free to come back at me with questions another time as I continue to wrestle with that, that statement as well. But are there any other questions or thoughts on 1 Corinthians? Wonderful. Okay. Well, let's turn to our gospel lesson for next week. Luke chapter 4. Oh, as you're turning to Luke chapter 4, I will mention too that um, if you continue on reading in 1 Corinthians to chapter 14, then it will get into discussion specifically again of the spiritual gift of prophecy and tongues, because that seemed to be the major issue, uh, or the major gift at issue in that church at that time. But we will not be doing that today. So Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 31. Luke 4, verse 31 through 44. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them. It would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Here ends our gospel reading for next weekend. A lot in there, isn't it? Quite frankly, it, I mean, it's a short portion of Scripture as far as the number of words that are used, but there's a lot packed in here. Okay? 
So first, if we just look at verses 37 through 38, we have, as the subtitles in, in the Bibles um, often write, Jesus heals a man with an unclean demon. Okay? But looking at this, he goes to Capernaum and, on the, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. They're astonished at his teaching in verse 32. So before we even get to the demon, notice that as he's teaching them, they are astonished at his teaching. Okay? This is, remember where we are in the context of Scripture. Luke chapter 4. So in the early part of his gospel. So this is the earlier part of Jesus' earthly ministry. Okay, so people are just beginning to really start to see who he is and what he's come to do. And quite frankly, I think even yet, they don't really even know who he is and what he's come to do. I think it'd be fair to assume that even at this point, they don't really have a good grasp at all of who Jesus truly is. But they do, as it says in verse 32, they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. That key, that's a key phrase. His word possessed authority. On the one hand, in this, in this reading of scripture, you can see his word possessed authority because, one, the way he teaches. Simply teaching, he teaches with authority. And that's definitely a thing of, uh, that's specific to Jesus being the divine man that he is. Because when he teaches, he teaches differently than anyone else. I always often talk about this when, you're, when, you're, when we were doing confirmation classes. That, well, first of all, when we start talking about Jesus in the second article, I always ask, who is Jesus? If you were to go downtown, like go downtown St. Louis City, and you'd be on the street corner, just pick a random street corner, and you were to do a poll and survey everybody who comes down the street that day, and say, well, who, who do you say that Jesus is? Actually, you can YouTube this stuff. There's some good ones out there. Um, that do this kind of thing. All different kinds of answers. Amongst those answers, oftentimes you get, well, he's a teacher. He's a good teacher. You get people who say, oh, he's a good man. He's a miracle guy. Right? All this other kind of stuff. As I always point out in that lesson, okay, yeah, he can be all those things. A good teacher, he did miracles, and he's got, but the point is you can't isolate him. To say he's just a good teacher is far, falling far short of who Jesus truly is. But it is an important part of who he is. As we see here in the scripture, he's a teach he teaches with authority. They're astonished at his teaching. So we go on to what some would see the main focus in this part, but I think there's a lot of different focuses in this reading. Verse 33, in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. Cried out with a loud voice, ha, what have you to do with me, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. There's a demon-possessed man. The reality of this account is there's a man who's possessed by a demon. Some, for some, it's difficult to recognize and acknowledge that demons exist. But they do. One, we have a counsel in Scripture. And by no means to give them any kind of credit or to be fantasizing of that, but the reality is that demons exist today too. Okay. We see in accounts of scripture far more dramatic examples because it's recorded for us. But in part, I do share this to say that demons exist. But we don't have to be scared of them because we know who we are in Christ. And we know that with Christ, we have nothing to fear. Go back to even the same kinds of words God said to Jeremiah. It's a different context, but it's the same words apply. God says, I'm with you and I'm going to you know, give you my words. I'll keep you safe. Okay? Same words can apply. The reality is, is demons exist. And here, look at the fact that, look at what's going on in this passage. This demon recognizes Jesus. Calls him Jesus of Nazareth. The Holy One of God. 
actually some commentators that'll get that uh, that point to and think that the demons are recognizing earlier in the Gospels who Jesus is than the people. I mean, the people who are gathered around seeing these miracles and, the, and what Jesus is doing, there are some commentators that will point out and say that the demons seem to be recognizing Jesus before those people. And all that to say is that the demons, I mean, they recognize who Jesus is. But there's a difference. Demons don't believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Okay? And this is a, main, a good point that we can stem off from that, to think that it's different to just know about Jesus, know what the, who he claims to be, know who people claim to be, and then to truly believe in him. There's another passage, I, I couldn't find it. Uh, I think it's in First Peter, I could be wrong. Um, so correct me if, if I'm wrong. But it says that even the demons know and shudder at his name. The demons know, and we see this in this passage, they know who Jesus is, and yet they shudder at his name as that other passage brings in. So the point is... It's not enough for us just to know who he is, but truly believe in him as our Lord and Savior. To truly believe he's the Holy One who has so much for us. So the demon speaks out. And then my question to you is, how does Jesus cast out the demon? With his word. It's significant. Okay? I've probably said it because uh, it, it's important to repeat and remember Look at how Jesus does miracles. How do Jesus casts out demons. Because it's important how he does it. It's different than anyone might think. It's not like he does some dance, puts together some spells and potions. I mean, simply speaking, he does it. Speaking his word, he casts out an unclean spirit that no one else could cast out. An unclean spirit that's terrible and doing terrible things. And yet with his word, he casts it out. And that's the very same word that he gives us. That we get to read in these Bibles. That we get to hear. That we're sitting here talking about. Okay? His word is so powerful. And that's what he can do with it. That's the same word with the same power that he has for you. And then there at the verse 36. Uh, they were, the people around were amazed and said, What is this word for with authority and power? He commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Again, it kind of points out. They don't really see what's going on. I mean, they see this authority and power, and yet do they truly see? No, because he, Jesus has not yet. I mean, he's not yet to the cross where he'll show his greatest display of his power and glory. Okay? We go on to verse 38 through 40. Um, subtitles in many script Bibles will say Jesus heals many. Again, those aren't scriptural. Okay, but uh, very good exposition of scripture that they've written that. So Jesus heals all these people. And the first one in verse 38 and following is Simon's mother-in-law. She was ill with a high fever. And that's also a reference that likely meant there was something a lot more serious going on. It's not like she has just a fever, but it's very serious. A very serious illness. And they appeal to her. And then verse 39. And he, Jesus, stood over her and rebuked the fever. And it left her. So again, how did he heal her? His word. With his word, he healed her. And then look at what happened. It left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. What a picture. As it, I think it's in the study notes here that it says this. But what a picture of discipleship that this shows us. What a great picture of discipleship. She's healed by Jesus Christ. And then she rises and serves. 
He shows his great power and authority for her, and as a result, in return, she serves. Is that not also what we get to do? We get to hear and receive his great power and authority. And no, we don't have necessarily someone who's brought with a terribly ill fever and horribleness and that Jesus speaks to her right in front of us and we get to see this healing. But I think it's been now the third time this week I've been in Bible class. So for some of you, it'll be a repeat. But again, we have miracles right in front of us where God speaks his word to us. And we see something amazing. We receive something amazing. Miracles still happen today, okay? I said this in living ways, so I know there's some overlap here today. Miracles of baptism, the faith that God creates in us. Miracles of holy communion, set up right here for us in our gym. We'll have worship here shortly. God does these great things. We come to worship. Worship is ultimately God serving us. Got some of our elders in the room. We just had our elders retreat. We talked about worship and got into the theology of it to understand better. Worship's all about God giving us his gifts. Yeah, in part, we get to praise him. We get to return to him. Yes. But worship's about us being there. As a result, what do we do? We serve Him. We serve Him in worship with our prayers and our, and our praises and thanks, but ultimately the rest of our life. Okay. So, let's turn to the last part of this account then. Or, well, if you're turning in the Bible. And then you have the last few verses. Verses 42 uh, through 44. Oh, I skipped one, sorry. Uh, the latter half of that other is not after he heals Jesus or the mother-in-law... They cast out another demon. Okay? Verses uh, 41. The demons came out met of crying, You are the Son of God. Again, how did Jesus heal, cast him out? His word. It says again, But he rebuked them. And he would not allow them to speak. And there's some thought into that, those words. He would not allow them to speak. Because he didn't want them to keep going on in ways that would be false about him. They knew, you know, they, they cry out that he's the son of God. But if the, demons, if the demons were to go on, what would they say about Jesus? Likely, plenty of things that were completely false, twisting who he is or twisting his words. And isn't that really the whole point of what the devil and his demons are doing in this world? To give a false, inaccurate picture of God or to twist things in this world so that we'll be pulled away from the truth or rather believes the lies and the deception. And so... Jesus knew at that time he would not allow them to speak. But in the three times we have these instances, okay, he uses this word rebuke. And so he rebuked um, the demon. He rebuked the fever. And again, demons. So just through all of that, I encourage you to see the power of his word. And the power his word has over two things, physical and the spiritual. His word can rebuke the physical, the, this, this fever that's in this woman, the physical ailment that she's having, and he can rebuke it. He can cast it away and get rid of it. His word can also rebuke the spiritual, the demons. That's the power of his word. And although maybe the people didn't fully recognize it just yet, that's what he came to share. Because then you have the last few verses, verses 42 through 44. And Jesus pointedly says in verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. He was sent for the purpose to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. 
And that's what we see in his earthly ministry. Preaching the good news as he does these miracles in front of people. As he teaches. To show his power and authority. Ultimately leading to on the cross he would show his greatest display of his power and authority. So we only have a couple minutes left. Are there any questions or thoughts? Yeah, Nancy. Sure, yes. Yeah. So do the, the demons realize that he's the, the Savior and who he is with his, his role? Absolutely, they realize it. But as you're pointing out, they're already, uh, one, they're already, their um, future's already decided. I mean, because they've already been cast out, that's where they're at, and they won't be with him. They don't have a chance to repent and come to them. But again, I point out to what you said, which is correct. They know who he is. But again, as I said, they don't believe in him as their Lord and Savior. They're of the other way, um, opposed to him. But correct. Any other thoughts or questions? Comments? Type a word of prayer. <coughs> Gracious Father, Lord, again, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word. And in your word, Lord, we hear of the great power and authority that you have. That your word has even for us, too. We hear of your promises to your people, your promise to Jeremiah that you would be with him, that you would give him your word. And Lord, we know that that is a promise you have also given to us to be with us, to give you or give us your word. And even Lord, to know that you have known us since before we ever formed. And so Lord, we pray that these words would bring us great comfort and strength and that they may always dwell on our hearts and in our minds. And so, Lord, we lift up to you these things and all things on our hearts and minds. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.